Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 88 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Anna Lee Newitz, editor of io9, the internet's most popular science fiction website. Her new book, Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, describes massive disasters throughout Earth's history and explores how we might increase our chances of surviving the next one. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Julia Galef, host of the Rationally Speaking podcast, joins us to discuss rationalism and science fiction. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Anna Lee Newitz. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so your new book is called Scatter, Adapt, and Remember. So what's that about? This is a science nonfiction book, which I am describing as being somewhere between very hard science fiction and absolutely straight science writing. It's partially a scientific discussion of the history of mass extinction on the planet, and it's partly a speculative science-based musing on how humans could survive the next mass extinction based on what we know now of how they unfolded before, but also what we know of the technologies and uh, about biology today that will take us into the future. And you say at the beginning of the book that you got interested in disasters from watching monster movies. So I'm just curious which (laughs) monster movies have had the greatest impact on you. I have to say that the more fantastical disaster movies are the ones I like the best. So giant monster movies are in the top. Like if I were to rank, you know, one to 10, like giant monster movies are really at the top. And then I also like movies about uh, that try to deal really realistically with what would happen if there were some kind of pandemic, like say 28 days later or something like, um, even the road, I think, is somewhat realistic, although I think it's got a lot of problems. But I like sort of the exploration of how humans survive disasters and what happens to civilization during times of extreme tribulation. This is really a book about a kind of disaster that people don't think about because it happens slowly over geological time. Uh, A mass extinction is when more than 75% of all species on the planet die out, and it usually takes about a million years. So it's not something like a giant explosion or a giant monster that you can kind of see in one human lifetime, holy crap, like this giant thing happened. It's something that you really can only see from historical perspective. And what's somewhat alarming is that we now have evidence because we've been gathering data for so long, that indeed we may be in the first stages of a mass extinction, partly because we're seeing elevated levels of extinction among animals, but also because we now know from fairly recent uh, geological work that most mass extinctions that have happened in the past, and there have been five already, were caused by climate change. So 
we're in a phase right now of climate change on Earth. And so those two pieces of evidence put together, climate change and elevated extinction levels, make it look like we could be a few thousand years into a mass extinction event. Uh, I guess, could you just give a couple more examples of the kinds of disasters that you talk about in the book? Sure. Um, I talk a lot about, initially, I talk a lot about the kinds of disasters that have caused the climate change that led to previous mass extinctions. And so some of them are pretty awesome, like they would make great disaster movies. Uh, For example, it seems that one of the mass extinctions, the Ordovician mass extinction, may have been caused by the planet being bombarded with gamma radiation from some kind of space disaster. That's one theory. I mean, there's there's other theories too, but uh, it was a period when there was a very, this was about 450 million years ago, there was a very rapid ice age. And the question is, why would an ice age happen so quickly in under 100,000 years? And one possibility is that big chunks of the atmosphere were fried off and that that changed how reflective the atmosphere was. And so light was not entering as much and things cooled down really fast. So that's one pretty cool one. Uh, And then there was the end Permian mass extinction, which was caused by super volcanoes. And this was a super volcano that erupted for about a thousand years. So very long eruption, releasing lots and lots and lots of toxins and ash and carbon into the environment. So that was, I like to call that the super industrial revolution mass extinction, because basically the kinds of climate change we're seeing now are very similar. It's just that we're releasing all those toxins through burning fossil fuels instead of having a super insanely giant long-lived volcanic eruption. Um, And then, of course, there's the famous mass extinction that we've all heard about, which is 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs were wiped out, or most most of the dinosaurs were wiped out. And that mass extinction was set off, it was a one-two punch, because there were super volcanoes erupting in India already. So things were going downhill in terms of the environment and the climate. And then the planet was hit by an asteroid. And speaking of asteroids hitting the Earth, one of the details from the book that really struck me was I think most people, when they think about an incoming asteroid, they think, oh, we would send some astronauts up to blow it up with a nuclear bomb. And one of the experts you talk to in the book says, no, we would never send people to go asteroid hunting because by the time it was close enough that people could reach it, it would be way too close. There'd be nothing we could do about it. That's right. And there's actually, right now, we have a program at NASA, uh, which is the Near Earth Objects Program, which is using uh, space-based telescopes to monitor all of the objects in our kind of solar system region that might intersect with the Earth's path. Uh, And so it's, it's obviously important to monitor these objects because those are the ones that are most likely to hit us. But in order to really defend against an asteroid effectively, we need to continue having these kinds of space-based telescopes because they will see objects in an intersect course with the planet, say, 20 years out. And that that's something we can do now and that we need to continue doing because, of course, the landscape in our volume of space is always changing. There's always new guys coming out of the Oort cloud and different rocks that get knocked out of the asteroid belt for various reasons. And so, actually, if we catch one of these rocks coming in 20 years out or 15 years out, it's relatively easy to push it out of our path. 
And what we would have to do is send probes out there, much like the probes we've already sent into the asteroid belt or that we've sent to intercept comets, for example, and have them just nudge that rock out of the way. Because if it's far enough away, all you have to do is a little bit of nudging. You don't even have to set off a nuke, even though that sounds really cool. <laughs> Um, you can just nudge it a little bit and that changes its trajectory. And of course, by the time that trajectory is intersecting with where the Earth might have been, it's been radically altered because, again, it's years out. Uh, but so, I mean, there's all these things that might get us, right? Asteroids, supervolcanoes, uh, climate change, etc. And I understand that you started out this book feeling like we were basically doomed and you were just going to write about how we're all doomed but you kind of took a turn toward optimism in the course of researching the book. Was there a particular point where you kind of made that turn and started feeling more optimistic? Yeah, there was. I mean, I when you look at the history of mass extinctions on Earth, it really does feel like a sort of grim chronicle of death. And also when you look at human history and all the times we've nearly gone extinct, it's it's even more depressing. And the the turning point for me was when I was researching the worst mass extinction that ever happened, which was 250 million years ago at the end of the Permian period. That was the mass extinction that I mentioned earlier that was caused by a mega volcano that went off for about a thousand years, um, or perhaps a, a few times over a thousand year period. And that mass extinction killed off 95% of life on Earth. It even killed insects, which is extremely unusual. Usually insects survive mass extinctions. And so I'm reading about this grim period in the planet when most of the life on Earth was slime. And I, I interviewed a geologist who was telling me about, he had nicknamed it Slime World, and he was showing me a slice of rock from the ocean floor, which shows, you know, you can see a layer in the Permian where there's just all kinds of life and fossils from many, many different types of plants and animals. And then suddenly there's this stark black layer. And that's the slime layer where the only thing that was hanging around was slime and it was eating dead bodies a lot of the time. And then above it, you could see the reemergence of life, diverse life. And that to me, was hopeful. I mean, it was it was weird because it was this grim kind of hope, uh, what I wound up calling pragmatic optimism, which is to say, it's not optimism saying like, hey, you know, the future is going to be great because we're all going to upload ourselves and become energy beings. It was more the optimism of, you know what, even if the planet goes through a scenario where we lose 95% of species, I think humans are going to be part of that 5% of species that survive because we share a lot in common with the animals that have survived previous mass extinctions. But it may be really dark, ugly times. Like it may be freaking slime world. And, you know, it's kind of weird to call that optimistic, but I think that is the kind of optimism we need to have right now is something where we acknowledge the depths of the possible damage and disaster and horror that we might be facing, realize that we're going to make it through and think about the fact that, you know, given that we're going to make it through, maybe we should be doing something about making those grim times coming less grim. Well, I mean, if people are listening to this right now and they're like, hey, I don't want to live in slime world, 
uh, let's prevent that. Is there, what can they do? Are there organizations they can join or causes they can support or like what can listeners do about stuff like that? You know, there's some really basic stuff like, it's almost kind of like saying, eat a healthy breakfast. <laughs> you know, you you do need to be thinking about reducing waste, uh, reducing reliance on fossil fuels, all of those things that you've been hearing from environmentalists. Those are true. But I think in the long term, and this is where it gets science fictional and kind of fun, is that cities are going to change fundamentally over the next 100 or 150 years if we choose to walk down the pathway of survivability. And one of the ways they're going to change are just in terms of the materials we use to build them. You know, for example, the way this might look is in 150 years, you might have a city that is built partly from self-healing concrete. So if there's a disaster where a crack appears in a bridge or a building, that crack would repair because the concrete is made with bacteria that can, when perturbed, will extrude epoxy and other materials that allow that crack to fill in and become stronger. And so cities might look like they were kind of covered in scar tissue almost because they would be self-repairing. And we would also start, instead of using fossil fuels to do things like light our lights, we might just have algae that glows at night. We might be using algae for water purification and air purification. We really need cities that produce their own food with urban farms. We need cities that are built from materials that are functioning within their ecosystems so that the city is built out of the same living organisms that surround it in the ecosystem. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, how important would you say it is that we all start practicing megapolis omancy? <laughs> I'm glad that you brought that up because I think megapolisomancy is a weird way of thinking about the city's history as being part of its built environment. I mean, megapolisomancy, for those who have not read the freaking amazing novelette by um, Fritz Lieber called Our Lady of Darkness, it's city magic and it's city magic that's caused by urban design. It's basically certain buildings create uh, relationships between people, historical people, people who are dead, people who are alive, and ultimately can kind of bring about a kind of a meeting of dimensions or a transformation in the city itself. And the problem is that bad urban designers, the people who built some particularly heinous um, buildings in the San Francisco downtown area, have have set off dark spell over the city of San Francisco in this particular story. And so the main characters have to figure out how do you undo this citywide terrible spell. And it actually, the, the story grows out of a very long-running um, political conflict between people who wanted affordable housing for artists in San Francisco and people who wanted to build the Transamerica Pyramid, um, which was a for a long time considered a horrible eyesore in downtown San Francisco. Anyway, so it turns out the Transamerica Pyramid forms the final part of this terrible spell. And um, so I think that megapolisomancy is a way of thinking about how do the choices we make in the ways that we build our cities affect us as a community? 
In addition to Fritz Leiber, you mentioned a couple other science fiction authors in, in this book. You mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson, Paul McCauley, Arthur C. Clarke, and then obviously, most of all, Octavia Butler. Uh, could you just talk about why you decided to talk about those particular authors in the book? Yeah. Um, well, let me start by talking about Octavia Butler, because she's really, in a way, the muse of this entire book. Because a lot of her work deals with human evolution. And I, and by evolution, I don't mean something cheesy and psychological. I mean, actually biologically evolving. What do we turn into over time? And she never, ever falls into the trap of saying that a particular evolutionary path is perfect or terrible. Everything is always a compromise. And I think that you see this best in her trilogy, which is used to be called the Xenogenesis Trilogy, and I think now it's called Lilith's Brood, and it's sold as, it's three books sold in one book that's called Lilith's Brood. And in this story, humans have destroyed the Earth mostly in a nuclear war, and there's a small number of human survivors, and they are rescued by aliens who have entirely biological technology. So all of their technology is about creating stable, diverse uh, ecologies that they use as spaceships and that they use as communications devices and medical devices and all kinds of other stuff. So their entire spaceship is a living organism and they grow trees to live in. Um, and the trees, of course, have like perfectly nice floors and benches in them and everything like that. So they live in harmony with their environment. But the way that they reproduce is they join with other species. They have this incredible ability to manipulate DNA. And so they come to the humans and they're like, great, we've rescued you. Now we want you to breed with us and become part of our species. And there's a way in which becoming part of their species is a fantastic proposition because they're technology and their spacefaring abilities are far beyond humans. They don't have war. They don't appear to have hierarchical politics, but they will, of course, remove from these humans anything that's human about them. What will happen is they'll ultimately create a hybrid species that's nothing like the aliens and that's nothing like humans either, or it's kind of like both of them. At the same time, the hope that she offers in that book and in a lot of her other books as well is that these new hybrid creatures won't actually forget what it means to be human, that they will think of humans as being an important part of their history, important ancestors, and that they will retain some traits of humanity. And you know, as we face the future, one of the things that humans really have a hard time with is that change part. Like Bill McKibben, you know, he's so scared of genetic modification because he says, we won't be human anymore. And that's okay. Like being human is partly about evolving. And that's what it means to be a life form is to evolve. And so we have to embrace change as part of what it means to to survive. So I think that that was, I mean, that really provided a nice framework and a way forward for me in terms of thinking about the future, that it won't be 
we won't be headed toward like a perfect state of the light-filled beings from Star Trek, that it'll be messy and there will be compromises and people will be pissed off and, you know, we might become tentacled aliens in the end. And that's okay. That's a win <laughs> if we do that, um, because it means that we've survived and we've changed to meet changing environmental conditions. And that's that's what life, that's that should be our life goal as a species. And a lot of the other science fiction authors I talked to, like Kim Stanley Robinson and Paul McCauley especially, have both thought a lot about kind of the steps on the way toward that future. Like, how would we do things like geoengineering? How would we do things like re-engineering humanity to suit new environments in space? And um, Paul McCauley has uh, a background in biology and has written incredibly interesting um, novels where he talks about uh, geoengineering on other worlds. And, and so has Kim Stanley Robinson. And actually, one of the things that um, Stan said to me or Kim Stanley Robinson said to me that I thought was such a great insight was I was asking him, you know, how are we going to get from total fear of genetically engineering humans to accepting it? Because there's this leap that so many science fiction authors just kind of take for granted where we are suddenly re-engineering our bodies to live in space. Because of course, we'd have to do that. You know, humans are not radiation resistant, and they aren't suited to lots of other environments. And so in order to make ourselves fit into those environments, we're going to have to tweak the germline. And um, so uh, Stan said, you know, as soon as we have a technology or a genetic tweak that allows us to extend human lifespan, that's going to be the doorway. Like once we have that, which is something that everyone wants, then people will become much more comfortable with transforming the human germline and transforming humans through genetic engineering. And I think that's a really good observation. And it totally contradicts what every single biologist I talked to said. All of the synthetic biologists I talked to who are people who are actively working with tweaking genomes in things like bacteria were absolutely like, no way, humans will never genetically modify themselves. It will never, ever in a billion years happen. Just forget it. Whereas, you know, Stan was like, of course it'll happen. Like, and it'll happen as soon as we have this one breakthrough technology. So that's one of the things I think ultimately that's great about science fiction is that it goes where science is afraid to go. <laughs> and is, you know, because scientists have to really focus on the here and now and they have to get grants and they can't say wacky shit like, we're going to change the germline and make, you know, make humans who can live on Titan, um, you know, but science fiction writers can, and they can really think in long-term ways about how science will impact culture. So, so thank goodness for science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, and speaking of science fiction, in addition to writing books, you also edit the popular website, io9. Uh, do you just want to talk a little bit about what's been going on over there recently? Are there big stories you're excited about or like just what's new over at io9? Yeah, I mean, things are going great. I mean, we're having a, an awesome summer because people are really excited about things like Star Trek and Iron Man. And I'm excited about Pacific Rim, uh, which <laughs> is, of course, a giant monster movie. Um, the big thing that's coming up on io9 this summer is we're doing um, a... Summer of Citizen Science. And we're encouraging io9 readers to pick one or two citizen science projects to participate in 
and then write about them on io9's new Kinja platform. And Kinja allows you to create your own io9 blog, and what you post there can be quickly shared onto io9.com, the website. And of course, you can share posts from io9 onto your own Kinja as well. And so we're hoping to get a lot of scientists and citizen scientists writing about what they find whether it's, you know, doing stargazing or counting birds or participating in creating um, a new kind of 3D printer. We just really want people to spend their summer indulging in citizen science and doing something scientific uh, while they're on vacation or while they're, you know, in between uh, jobs or whatever. And uh, so that's, that's going to be our next big thing is everybody doing science. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in the time that you've been running the site, have you noticed trends in terms of what makes a post popular that would be useful for other people who blog about science and science fiction to keep in mind? You know, it's there's no good formula. People, you know, claim that, for example, like the ultimate internet story is a list. And it's not actually always true. You know, we, we do lists quite a lot, and sometimes they do well, and sometimes people don't care. I think what really matters is the author of the post being passionate about what they're writing about and really showing that they've done research and thought about it and that it's not just like I linked to another person doing a thing, but you know, I actually went out and I interviewed the scientist who was working on this stuff or I did a bunch of reading about the history of this particular idea. I mean, and things like this podcast, which is not a 10-minute podcast, right? No, since I edit this show, no one needs to. No one knows better than I do that this is not a ten-minute-long podcast. <laughs> but it's you know it is true that like a lot of the time the advice that you read is you know make it really short because people don't have time, and it's just I just don't think that's true. I think people do have time and they make time for stuff that they feel is meaty and will actually teach them something. Uh-huh. I mean, last year you and. Um, Esther Inglis Arkell launched a video, sort of a io9 TV show called We Come From the Future. Um, could you talk about what your experience was sort of uh, trying to branch out into video? Um, it was really fun. I think the most fun part was um, Esther is a incredible science experiment designer. She has a background in physics, and I think that gave her a real craving for experiments that you could do in five minutes on TV. Because of course, in physics, oftentimes the experiments require you to have like an enormous um, (laughs) particle accelerator. Hmm. So (laughs) she maybe gets more excited about stuff where it's like, I have a pickle and I plugged it in and made it glow. (laughs) Um, You know, so we had a lot of fun doing that and inviting other people in to do science experiments with us. And um, it was a really fun, positive experience. Although it's really, as you know, it's really different editing something to be seen or heard than it is producing something to be read. It was hard. It was hard to switch from from writing into being a face on TV. And uh, I have to confess that I am much more of a written word person. It's probably because I grew up on like Usenet and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I, I'm text identified. See, I noticed that you had a previous book called Pretend We're Dead, Capitalist Monsters in American Pop Culture. That's yeah. right. And I was just, uh, could you talk about that book? Like what does uh, capitalism have to do with zombies? That book actually grew out of my dissertation that I did at Berkeley 
where I was looking to talk about mostly 20th century monster stories and how the popularity of certain kinds of monster stories was affected by economic conditions in the United States. Throughout the 20th century, zombie movies have really changed a lot. Zombie stories in the early 20th century were about really the origin of the zombie myth in um, the Caribbean. And the earliest zombie films like I Walked with a Zombie, which has such a silly title, but is actually an incredible film. Like if people haven't seen it, go out and rent I Walked with a Zombie because it's explicitly about a basically a kind of a slave rebellion um, on in a plantation. And of course, it's after slavery has been abolished, but the natives on the Caribbean island are still being treated like slaves. And um, zombies are one of the ways that the Black working class has of kind of getting back at their white overlords. This is kind of how the zombie myth begins in the United States. Is it, It's explicitly a story about race relations between white, wealthy people and Black working class people or Black rural populations. It's very much about that. And over time, the zombie really shifts and becomes much more of a figure for thinking about um, just generally the working class, like the wandering hordes of hungry people, um, hungry consumers in uh, the kind of um, Living Dead movies that you see later. Um, But that's why, for example, Night of the Living Dead is so interesting as a transitional zombie film, because it's about a black hero who's dealing with white zombies and it kind of switches the racial politics of previous zombie movies. And, and of course, the black guy in, in that film is like the only person who has any idea of how to behave and how to deal with this menace, um, which is a white menace. It's all a bunch of, you know, white people wandering around being like, Bleh. and um, and and of course, well. Is it okay to give spoilers for like a film from the 1960s? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So, of course, he's murdered at the end by a bunch of white cops. So, it's this perfect, it's this great moment where it's kind of, it is very much a racial allegory. And then, you know, in uh, The Walking Dead, which of course is not 20th century, but you're still seeing like, it's so, the, the race... The issues around race and class in Walking Dead are so rich and interesting, even though the show is kind of annoying. Well, and speaking of The Walking Dead, in one of the uh, lectures I just saw you give, you said that you thought that Star Trek would have more staying power than The Walking Dead. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on what you meant by that. I think that specifically The Walking Dead, not necessarily stories about the undead, because of course, stories about the undead, I think, are going to be around for a long time. Um, I think the relevance of a show like Walking Dead is pretty time sensitive. And what I mean by that is I feel like a lot of the concerns that are expressed in Walking Dead, the kinds of anxieties that make us love that narrative, the kinds of social issues that we see in it are very they're very early 21st century. Like I feel like people in 50 years will look back and be like, "Wow, that's really a relic of the early 21st century." Whereas I think Star Trek is 
well, it's already proven itself to be a narrative that can mutate and evolve over time and can change to meet changing social conditions and can reflect new social issues. And as much as people criticize the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, which I absolutely think they should, I'm you know, like everyone, I'm a little bit sad about the new film. But one thing that J.J. has done, um, if I may call him J.J., mm-hmm. um, is he's switched the importance of the lead character. So it used to be like, Kirk, 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 everybody's all about Kirk. And now I feel like Spock is the new hero. And that's really interesting. I think it reflects a dramatic shift in our culture toward making the kind of geeky character the logical character into the heroic figure at the center of this story. Spock is the one who makes the good decisions. He's the ethical center of the story. He has true passion because, of course, normally he's rational. But so when he actually is passionate, it's something that's meaningful. It's not just because he's like Kirk, who's like, you know, passionate about everything because he's a doofus. You know, he's just never in control of anything. And so that, I think, is a, just a great example of how Star Trek can have staying power because it's a story about the future. It's a story about a future that many of us hope will come to pass. And it's a story about the future that responds to the changing conditions of the future, right? Because now we are living in the future of previous Star Trek. I'm going to start sounding like I'm talking about some kind of weird time loop, but we are in the future of the previous version yeah, of the Yeah, we're like future. past the eugenics wars. We are. We're past the eugenics wars. Um, <laughs> and um, the fact that the that the narrative um, behind Star Trek, like the underlying story, has continued to be relevant to people and continued to be part of a blockbuster franchise, I think, A, it's testimony to how much we are invested in this as a as a story of our possible future, and B, how well the story um, can change to meet our new understandings of what the future will be like. Because maybe now we're thinking that the future belongs to a passionate, rational scientist, and that our leadership can come not just from like a swashbuckling white dude um, who looks cute in a tunic but also from somebody who, um, like Spock, who, of course, he also looks cute in a tunic, <laughs> but he's a, a figure who represents rationality as well as um, bravery and passion. Uh, all right, we're almost out of time. I want to make sure, though, that everyone knows about the CD3WD document. Uh, do you want to just tell people what that is? That is one of many different documents that I talk about in my book, which are attempts to put together as much human knowledge as you would need to restart human civilization. And, you know, this particular document is, it can be held on three CDs so that you can have some sort of offsite storage. You don't have to get it from Wikipedia. And it contains information about everything from agriculture to basic medicine to uh, basic generators, how to build a generator. You know, each of these document sets has pluses and minuses, and I think um, they're great to keep on your tablet, though, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, it is really a fun thought experiment to think about what 
what are the minimum number of machines or what is the minimum amount of knowledge you would need to um, rebuild a viable civilization? Uh I mean, just given your interest in the end of the world and how much time you must have spent thinking about it, I just imagine you have one of these documents, like, like one in your house, one in your glove box, just all over the place. Well, what I'm really interested in is preventing a disaster from happening. So the kinds of stuff I'm interested in are plans for dealing with disaster and averting disaster. So I'm I'm less interested in the scenario where civilization falls and we have to rebuild. That's a very potent fantasy and I totally understand why people wish that civilization would fall so they could rebuild something better, but that hasn't been how it's ever gone down historically. Like there's never been a moment when every place on the planet lost civilization. You know, we think about, for example, in the West, everyone's obsessed with like, well, but remember when Rome fell and everything was shit? Well, other parts of the world were, you know, uh, in the Middle East, for example, civilization was rising and civilization was incredibly sophisticated during that time when white people were sitting around being tribal or whatever. And I think that it's kind of a mistake to imagine that all of civilization would fall. I think it's incredibly important to have the knowledge of being able to, if your local area uh, suffers a disaster, to be able to build machines and build um, farms to deal with that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have that knowledge. And I, I really do kind of admire preppers for thinking about that stuff. Um, but I don't think that we should ever imagine that all of human civilization will fall. Famous last words. <laughs> People will be quoting this to me in 15 years saying, yeah, remember when you said that? <laughs> and if civilization fell, I wouldn't be able to read IO9. So like, what would I do all day? I would have to just fight mutants or something. It'd be pretty boring. Um, yeah. And, you know, or you would have to create your own local network and build your own IO9, right? <laughs> That's what you would, that would be the first thing, right? Like, all right. I mean, I'm here in San Francisco. So when civilization falls, that is the first thing I want to work on is let's create a local network uh, with, you know, locally generated power so that we can start getting information out to people in the city and letting them know what's going on and what to do. So, um, and then in that case, yeah, we'll just have local IO9. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But so while civilization uh, is still going, uh, what kind of stuff are you working on? Do you have other books you're thinking about or any new projects in the works? I I do have some books I'm thinking about. Um, I have a science fiction novel that is in desperate need of revision, but that will happen over the next year. Um, and I have a couple of other nonfiction ideas that are not for public consumption, but, but I am definitely uh, working on some upcoming projects. But right now, I'm just focused on helping people think about surviving a mass extinction and also working on io9. I'm really excited to be back just doing io9 for a while um, instead of trying to do io9 and a book at the same time. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so expect more um, meaty, uh, big features from me on io9. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been talking to Annalie Newitz. Her new book is called Scatter, Adapt, and Remember. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Annalie Newitz for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing rationalism in science fiction. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Julia Galef. 
She's the co-host of the Rationally Speaking podcast and president of the Center for Applied Rationality in Berkeley, California. So, Julia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a delight to be here. And I guess the first thing we want to know is just could you lay out how big of a science fiction fan are you? Would you say you're a moderate science fiction fan, major science fiction fan? Uh, I guess I'd say I'm a moderate science fiction fan. You know, I have, there's a, a bunch of science fiction that I really enjoy, but it tends to be the more cerebral philosophical science fiction. Like, have you heard of Ted Chiang? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so he's uh, like at the center of the cluster of the types of science fiction that I like. So wait, what's your favorite Ted Chiang book? Oh, well, I mean, that's a joke. He only has one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, there, I liked his story about, um, about what it would be like to have your intelligence multiplied a hundred thousand times greater than sort of standard human intelligence. And what would that would like feel like from the inside? And the one that he posted online, I think that wasn't in his compilation was about, I don't remember what it was called now, but uh, it was about these like computer pets, I guess. Yeah, the Um, life cycle of software objects. Yes, thank you. And all of the sort of hairy moral questions that arise when they essentially become sentient and the world that was created for them to live in is going to be shut off. Uh, Yeah, I basically love science fiction that's like a particularly vivid, narratively rich philosophical thought experiment. All right, cool. And so, you know, John and I are both very rational, skeptical kinds of people who don't believe in the supernatural at all. And we still love stories about monsters and magic and stuff like that. But it does kind of bug us sometimes how rationalism and skeptics are portrayed, especially in movies and TV shows. And I know from things I've heard you say that you feel the same way. And uh, in in one of the most recent Rationally Speaking podcasts, you mentioned that you had a problem with this in the recent movie Cloud Atlas. Uh, oh so yeah, I think I was I was talking about how I wanted to create a a straw Vulcan award um, <laughs> that would essentially that we would you know give it every like uh, month or every year to the movie or TV show or whatever that committed this fallacy the most egregiously, and I wanted to award it that month or maybe this year to Cloud Atlas because of this line where I don't want to spoil anything, but basically the, one of the characters is a scientist. And uh, at one point, his daughter is saying to to someone about her father, the scientist, that <clears throat> my father was a scientist, but nevertheless, he still believed in love. Well, and both my parents are scientists, so I hope scientists are capable of love because otherwise my parents never loved me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that when uh, when people like portray this version of science or of, you know, of scientists. I feel like on some level, they can't possibly really think that because there are just so many examples of scientists who are, or science advocates who are passionate and uh, loving and, you know, excitable and enthusiastic. Like, I don't know if you've ever like watched Neil deGrasse Tyson, that guy's just one giant (laughs) ball of enthusiasm and excitement and, you know, emotion. Or, oh God, Carl Sagan would be a great example. If you've ever heard him talk about his wife or heard his wife talk about him. It's so beautiful. Mm. Or Richard Feynman, too. I would, I would oh, God, say. yeah. Yeah, it is strange how movies and in culture generally, people act as if love is this completely inexplicable thing you know, that science is just baffled by how sexually reproducing social mammals would form bonds of attachment to each other. 
you know, when actually it seems pretty straightforward, <laughs> you know, why that would yeah, happen. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I agree that it's silly to pretend that science can't, we can't learn anything through scientific inquiry about what's going on when love happens or, you know, what causes the feeling that we know to be love. And and I think that that attitude that science could never explain love is sort of, we have this instinctive, humans in general have this instinctive desire to like cordon off parts of humanity or the human condition that like scientists, science could never explain um, because otherwise we feel like we're being reduced to, I don't know, to machines or to animals or something. Um, and it's like taking away our specialness. But to, to try to steel man that kind of thinking, by which I mean the opposite of straw man, to try <laughs> to like come up with the most reasonable interpretation of what this viewpoint is. Uh, there is a pretty legitimate debate, I think, in the philosophical community about whether we could ever like come up with a scientific explanation of personal experience that would make us able to grok what someone else's personal experience was like. Like, even if we knew exactly what happens in the brain at the smallest level of description, we still wouldn't be able to really know intuitively what it would be like to have that experience that the other person was having. It's a debate over qualia, it's called. Mm, yeah. Um, but just in terms of how scientists are portrayed, you know, one thing that I, I think my dad and I, one time my dad and I were watching some old science fiction movie. And I think maybe it was the original War of the Worlds, I'm not sure. But, you know, the, but anyway, there's a scientist character who's portrayed as being the hero. And my dad says, oh, you can see this as an old science fiction movie because the scientist is the hero. And, <laughs> uh, you know, he felt like there had really been a shift toward, you know, just all mad scientist type characters. And That's so, interesting. And so, I mean, John, what do you think? Uh, isn't that just, doesn't that just really make you angry how people are just perpetuating this image of the mad scientist <laughs> in pop culture? Uh, well, not really. Uh, I mean, you know, um, I mean, in, in a way it does and in a way it doesn't. I mean, obviously, uh, I, I just did a book called The Mad Scientist Guide to World Domination. So I'm sort of uh, helping perpetuate this, uh, this uh, notion of mad scientist. But, um, but no, I mean, you know, in, in regular movies where there's not an actual mad scientist involved anywhere, um, uh, it, it is it is frustrating that you can have some like really cool science fictional premise. And yet the hero of the story is always some guy who doesn't actually know science at all. And uh, I mean, you know, as much as Michael Crichton got me into science fiction, um, one of the frustrating things I, I sort of came to discover about him later is that once you actually analyze all of his works, it's like basically like science is the boogeyman in all of his stories. And so mm. um, even though he has scientists as heroes in his book, sometimes it's like they're actually kind of fighting. Against, it's like science is the thing that they're fighting against. Well, and that really makes me think of in Jurassic Park, the scientist hero character, uh, Ian Malcolm, I think was his name, mm -hmm. is basically, I mean, he's, he's an expert in chaos theory, but it's, it's a very anti-technological view of the implications of chaos theory. It, I mean, it, you basically get the idea that there's a law of science that says that you can't keep dinosaurs confined in an amusement park. <laughs> and I just don't accept that, that that's a sign. I mean, come on, if the guy from Seinfeld hadn't stolen the stuff at the same time the storm <laughs> came in, I mean, surely if they, they could build another Jurassic Park and then maybe something would go wrong with that one. But by the time they got to Jurassic Park 50 or something, surely they could keep <laughs> all the dinosaurs confined, right? I don't know, Dave. You've never heard of the no dinosaurs in theme parks law of physics? It's like right up there with the second law of thermodynamics. Hmm. Can't violate that. 
But uh, I mean, Julia, do you did you ever read Michael Crichton stuff though? I mean, did you did you have that sort of experience in books, or is it only movies and TV shows? Um, I'm sure there must be examples of this kind of anti scientist or like straw man scientist in books, but I feel like movies and TV are more susceptible to that kind of portrayal because just by their nature, they're more simplified. You just like have less space to communicate um, the subtleties of an issue. And it also might be the case that authors are just going to be like less anti-intellectual than Hmm. movie producers or that they might be trying to appeal to a less anti-intellectual audience than movies and TV. Yeah, well, I mean, to take a specific example, we just we recently interviewed Robert J. Sawyer and his series, uh, his book Flash Forward was adapted into a TV series. And scientists are the heroes in the book. And when they adapted it to TV, they told him flat out, like, scientists can't be the heroes in an American TV series. We've got to make them all doctors, lawyers and FBI agents. You can't see me, but I'm shaking my fist at the heavens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have a show like Fringe, where there is a a mad scientist type who is who is one of the protagonists. Although, as I as I just said in the description, he's a mad scientist. He's not just a scientist. He's a mad scientist. Um, And then one of the other main characters is a FBI agent, as you say. So it's like it maybe it's okay to have a scientist as one of the main characters, as long as he's not the main character. And as long as you also have an FBI agent. (laughs) That's like a law of science, like one FBI agent balances out one scientist or something. Yes. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned earlier that you thought that uh, Cloud Atlas should get uh, the Straw Vulcan Award. you want to just learn <laughs> more about what you mean by that? Oh, yeah. So the Straw Vulcan is this term which I wish I had come up with it, but uh, in fact, I borrowed it from TV Tropes, which is one of my favorite websites. Um, and it refers to a character uh, in TV or movies or books, whatever, whose role is essentially to prove that emotion is better than logic. Um, so the name comes from the straw man fallacy, which is when you create a sort of weakened caricature of some argument or some position uh, that's like easier to knock down. Um, and so the straw Vulcan then is like the straw man, except it's a caricature uh, specifically of rationality and logic and reason. And as you can imagine, it's named after the poster child of straw vulcanism, Mr. Spock. <laughs> uh, could you give some examples uh, from Star Trek of straw vulcanism in action? Sure, yeah. So straw vulcans, uh, and Spock is certainly uh, no exception, tend to expect that everyone else will behave logically and rationally. Like, for example, one in one episode in the original series, Spock screws up because he predicts that the aliens on this planet where they've crash landed will reason logically and decide that, you know, the aliens can't uh, overpower the ship and that they therefore won't attack. And he, you know, doesn't take into account the fact that they'll be like scared or emotional um, and that they might attack anyway, as of course they do. And he's sort of marveling after the fact in, in confusion. I don't understand it. It wasn't an, a rational thing for them to do. And of course, people don't always, you know, reason logically, and it's illogical to expect that they will, especially when you've had repeated evidence that they don't. And also, a straw Vulcan has to consider all possible details before making a decision, you know, whereas the like emotional intuitive character will make a snap decision. And of course, 
it is actually irrational to refuse to make a decision until you have all the information uh, in a lot of cases, because refusing to make a decision often just means like, all right, game over, you die, you know? Mm -hmm. See, John, you watched Julia's Straw Vulcan presentation, Mm -hmm. right? Did that make you just hate Star Trek because it's (laughs) so irrational? I don't know if it made me dislike Star Trek, but I mean, it did make me dislike uh, Mr. Spock uh, more than I had previously. And I mean, uh, he was never really my favorite character, but I always appreciated that he was supposed to be logical. But then, like, when you point out that so often he's actually completely illogical, um, yeah, it's just it's sort of upsetting that it's that he's put in this position where uh, a rational thinker is actually being portrayed as this idiot because he's not as uh, intuitive as as Captain Kirk. Yeah, it's not only about uh, making logic errors, but it's also like I was complaining about with respect to Cloud Atlas. It's also about this built-in assumption that if you're being logical, you can't have emotions and you can't mm-hmm. like fall in love and you can't you know appreciate beauty or have fun or anything like that. So for example, there's this episode, I think it's this side of paradise where Spock ends up, there's this flower with these spores that make you fall in love. And Spock is like tricked into being exposed to these spores. And so he's sort of temporarily turned into, you know, your, your normal quote, irrational human being. And while he's in this altered state, he's staring at the sky and he sees a rainbow and he, he says, you know, uh, it's so beautiful. And, and before I could have told you all the science behind, you know, what makes it occur, but I never could have told you that it was beautiful or like, I never could have appreciated its beauty. And so this is just like the perfect like encapsulation of the idea that understanding how things work and you know being able to reason logically means that you you know can't appreciate beauty which as you know Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Richard Feynman aptly demonstrate is is certainly not true. Yeah, and isn't it totally irrational to just appreciate the fact that forming emotional connections to other people is going to make me happy in my life and so therefore it's perfectly rational to want to do that? Yeah, that's the thing. So, you know, rationality, officially, the definition doesn't say what you should want. It's just like, based on whatever it is you do want, uh, trying to do things that will get you what you want. And most of us do actually want to be happy and, you know, emotional connections with other people and like having fun and being able to appreciate beauty are like some of the best ways to be happy. So it would be irrational not to pursue those things. I, I never really understood how how Spock or or Vulcans in general could actually just completely suppress their emotions. And I and I mean, it, I mean, at first when I when I was younger, I mean, I didn't actually realize that they had them and that, that they were just suppressing them. But just the fact that they're suppressing them, like I don't even understand how that could how you could actually function as a sentient being and and not have emotions really, just because it seems like it. Like how would I mean? Because like in the case of like Data, like he has a program, right? And so he's following what it says in his program. But like for Spock, like, well, how, how does he operate? How does he make decisions if he doesn't have if he doesn't have any reason to to want something more than anything else? Is, it, is he just following the rules of Starfleet? I mean, what about everybody that's in that's not in Starfleet where they're just like they're just Vulcans that have a job or something like how do they make decisions? I don't I don't understand. Yeah. In fact, there's been a lot of great research about how emotions are crucial to the decision making process. Like people who have sustained brain damage such that they can't feel emotions when they simulate possible futures, like they simulate themselves losing their job or they simulate their mother dying and they can't feel any emotion um, because of this brain damage, they uh, end up making horrible decisions, obviously, because, you know, 
when they're thinking about what to do, they like can't tell what will actually end up making them happy. Yeah, I guess like I guess in the case of Vulcans, it's not that they're really suppressing their emotions completely. It's just that they're suppressing them to the point where they're not allowing them to control them. So they have them and they have they at least allow their emotions to help them decide what their goals are. But then uh, they suppress them uh, otherwise so that they can act strictly logically or whatever. Well, I mean, Julia, in your lecture, I guess we should explain that Julia did a lecture called uh, the Straw Vulcan Skepticon 5 lecture or something. If you type that into YouTube, that's probably close enough that it'll find the video. Yeah, and I, I think I'm also doing a new version of it at a DragonCon this year. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you can go see it live, everyone. Yeah. But in, in that lecture, you point out that there's a distinction between intuitive reasoning and analytical reasoning. And there, we actually have two sections, two different sections of the brain that, that handle these two separate things and that they each have uh, pros and cons. Yeah. So I don't know uh, to what extent it really breaks down into like physical sections of the brain that handle these different uh, kinds of thinking, but there are at least these roughly defined two different kinds of thinking that our our brain uses in, you know at different times there's this sort of like fast uh, intuitive emotional thinking that scientists sometimes call system 1 because it came first in our evolutionary history like that's the part of cognition that we you know inherited from our evolutionary ancestors and then there's this newer system that sort of evolved on top of the old one that allows us to do analytical abstract reasoning like math or like even just considering hypotheticals, like what if things were different? Um, it's a system that allows us to think uh, long-term, like to make long-term plans. And they call it system two because it came second. And so rationality is typically thought of as being only about system two, like only about reasoning analytically and logically and not about drawing your intuition or your emotion. But what I argue and the principle that my organization, the Center for Applied Rationality, was based on is that rationality is actually about integrating those two systems uh, in an intelligent way. So knowing when your intuition is going to have the comparative advantage, like in situations where you have a lot of experience and you've just developed this intuitive sense of like, say you're a nurse, you might have a really accurate intuitive sense of when a baby is about to come down with an infection. And you may not be able to explain explicitly what signs you're picking up on, but your intu intuition is learned over time. It's just, you know, been trained again and again on examples. Mm -hmm. And Malcolm Gladwell had a book called Blink that was all about basically, you know, when the intuitive thinking actually gives you better results than analytical thinking. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, cool. But I, I was wondering, you know, do you think that maybe Star Trek would be more to your liking? If instead of drawing this false contrast between emotion and reason, it drew this accurate contrast between intuitive thinking and analytical thinking, and the Vulcans had just decided to double down, like all their chips are on analytical thinking and eschew intuitive thinking. And then, you know, um, you know McCoy for, or whoever would be all about intuitive thinking, and then the show would be about the, the real tension between those two real contrasting approaches. Yeah, I think that. The TV tropes description of straw Vulcanism makes a really good point that a show is only exhibiting the straw Vulcan fallacy if it's implicitly arguing that the failures of this, you know, so-called logical character are actually failures of rationality as opposed to being failures of the character, you know. So 
having this this like dichotomy of the character who only relies on their system one thinking, their emotion, their intuition, versus this character who only relies on their system two, like analytical thinking. There's no like straw Vulcan fallacy there. If the point of the show is that you have to like be able to combine them in order to make the rational choice. Yeah, or I think I thought it was a good example it was saying sort of if a character says, you know, if, if somebody is upset with you and you say to them, you're not being rational, your emotional response is totally disproportionate to the, to the situation. You're not actually being rational because you must understand that that's not a good way of interacting with someone's <laughs> emotions. Right? <laughs> right. And so if that's presented as a flaw in your character, then that's fine. But it's, yeah, it's, it, it's if, if the show suggests that your approach actually is the rational, logical approach. That's where you run into this straw volcanism, I would say, right? Yeah, exactly. I I think what you're proposing, Dave, actually would be an awesome revision of the Star Trek uh, ideal. And I mean, it is interesting, though, because like in the in the example you're postulating there, you know, Spock would be the analytical thinker and McCoy would be the intuitive one. And, you know, because they're sort of foils for each other. But isn't it kind of bizarre that McCoy... It would be the intuitive thinker. I mean, he's a, he's a doctor. How is his not brain full of analytical type thinking? I mean, if he was a doctor, I mean, he has to be able to look at and analyze all kinds of crazy stuff as, as a, as a doctor out on the frontier of the universe, you know? Well, um, maybe it would be Counselor Troy or some, like somebody like that would be the foil for, you know. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. Maybe, maybe it doesn't, yeah, right. Maybe in this revised, uh, thing that you're talking about, it wouldn't be McCoy per se, but somebody else. But I, I was thinking though that it, it's interesting because Kirk is sort of right in the middle because it's like he has the he has intuition, but he also has analytical thinking. And I mean, it seems like he he's we sort of tend to think of him as more of the intuitive type of leader, but um, but he definitely has a strong analytical brain as well. Yeah, no, because you know, in the last episode, we went I went back and watched Space Seed, which is the episode where Khan first appears, and I hadn't watched the original series in a long time, and it really struck me that Kirk is much more thoughtful and philosophical than I think, you know, people think of him as, as being that he is this balance, as you say. I did also want to note that it's not only about whether the supposedly rational character is ignoring his intuition and like ignoring emotion or, or suppressing his emotion, but it's also about how the fictional world is set up and is it set up in order to make rationality look, you know, less useful than it actually is. And uh, sometimes that's going to happen because the world is set up so that the you know, scientific explanation like, always fails, which is not actually how things work in reality. And then other times, and you see this a lot in Star Trek, the, universe is, the deck is stacked against rationality because someone, say Spock, will reason, uh, will calculate that like, we have you know, only a million to one chance of, uh, of making it through with your plan. And the intuitive hero says, like, I don't care. I'm going to go for it anyway. And then lo and behold, it succeeds. So this is like a universe in which million to one chances aren't actually million to one chances. Yeah, no, that drives me crazy. I have the example here is, you know, C-3PO in Empire Strikes Back. You know, I mean, and I think there's, there's about three in a row where he's like, it's an 801 chance we're going to die. And Han Solo says, never tell me the odds. <laughs> oh, yeah. Screw I you, think that before was what was named for. Back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, as a kid, that used to really bother me. It's like, wait, if, is C-3PO just really bad at statistics? Or, like, what is going on here? But, yeah, I mean, like, John, you mentioned Data. Uh, what do you guys, I mean, and Data was sort of, he's like the Spock of Next Generation. But he doesn't, 
as I recall, worship logic in the like or worship, worship the sort of um, uh, uh, what's the word idol idol of logic in the same way. Do you, do you and Julia, what do you think about that? Do you think that data is an improvement over Spock when it comes to portraying a character trying to learn how to be emotional? I'm not really sure, actually. I I have this memory that emotion was still portrayed as irrational and and you know data was trying to experience emotion just to like understand humans better but not because emotion was actually a crucial part of rationality but i could be wrong about that what's your impression well john you've watched star trek next generation like a million times what do you think yeah i don't know i mean i think data was all about he his goal for whatever reason whether that i mean i think it may have been part of his programming but his goal was always to be as human as he could be because he was created in the image of humans by his creator and his and his ultimate goal was to be as human as possible. And so I think he only ever pursued emotion because humans were emotional. And, um, and you know, he had all of the analytical thinking. I mean, like, it, basically his brain is 100% analytical, but that would be interesting, though. I'd be actually curious to, to see if uh, if you think that data actually displays any uh, intuition as opposed to just analysis because the thing is like his brain works so quickly that even though it might look like he makes a snap decision he may have actually run like a million calculations in his head in the time it takes us to even you know just blink and so um i i tend to think that he probably is 100 percent analytical but I, yeah like i was saying i mean his his pursuit of emotion was strictly only so that he could be more like humans and and they definitely experimented with uh with him sort of getting a taste of it and uh trying it on for size and whatnot and it not always being exactly what he thought it would be and uh I thought it was interesting that it, it, it didn't it wasn't just like a magical thing that he acquired and then like everything was wonderful and perfect after that, you know. Yeah. Whether or not data was using intuition is kind of like an undetermined question, I guess, because our our brains, like when they produce intuitive judgments. The human brain is actually doing a bunch of calculations. They're just sort of happening unconsciously. We, we don't have conscious access to them. So uh, the question of like whether or not Data was explicitly aware of the calculations that produced his judgments, I guess, is is the relevant question that, that just may not have an answer in uh, the fictional world. Well, John, I mean, you mentioned that Data's brain is like so many more times powerful than ours. And there's definitely a trope in science fiction that when somebody becomes too smart or too rational, they stop caring about whether humanity <laughs> continues to exist, right? Uh, like one example would be Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen, who's oh, sort yeah. of attained godlike powers. And there's a part where uh, a, a human woman tries to convince him to save the world, basically. And he's just kind of like, yeah, I'd like to save the world, but I'm afraid I'm feeling just a bit too rational today. <laughs> and um, I guess, Julia, what do you think of, of Dr. Manhattan? Uh, yeah, he's actually a good example of this less common aspect of straw volcanism, which is, you know, caring about whether you live or die, caring about whether humanity lives or dies is inherently irrational. And yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like what you care about is just independent of whether you're thinking or acting rationally. You might care about living an exciting life and I might care about living a calm, simple life. And that doesn't mean one of us is being irrational. It means we just have different preferences, right? So caring about humanity continuing to exist and not caring about humanity continuing to exist, uh, you can't really call either of them irrational per se. Being irrational would be like 
I care about humanity continuing to exist, and yet I will knowingly do things that will cause humanity to not exist. That would be irrational. Mm-hmm. I, I do wonder, though, like with Dr. Manhattan, I mean, I, I think like people definitely can be far enough removed from other people in the world where we're not moved to take action on their behalf, right? Like you hear about people starving in faraway countries, and you know you feel bad about that, but it's not present enough. It's not like not in front of you enough to force you into action, right? And so if you were like Dr. Manhattan, where you were aware of what's going on on billions of planets, would humanity kind of fade into the background noise in the same way that people on the other side of the planet sort of fade into the background noise for us? That's a really good question, actually. I currently feel very confused about the relationship between how much you viscerally feel the emotion of empathy and how much good you're actually going to do in the world. Because, you know, obviously, if you feel, you know, no, uh, if you don't care at all about anyone else, then you're not going to, you know, help anyone else in the world. But, but feeling strong empathy can actually prevent you from doing as much good as possible. Like, if you feel empathy for the person right in front of you who's begging, you might just, you know, spend your money giving to him instead of spending the same amount of money saving the lives of 15 people across the world by, you know, donating to the Against Malaria Foundation or something like that, which doesn't really give you the same empathy hit. Like it doesn't give you the same warm fuzzies as giving to someone who's right in front of you, but you'd actually be doing more good. Um, do you have a, an opinion, Julia, on how much we need to be afraid of super intelligent machines? I mean, are, do you consider machines to be rational in that way? And if they get really smart, will they like us or not? <laughs> well, so there's the question of whether we should expect, you know, greater than human intelligence computer programs to be developed anytime soon is sort of a separate question from the question of if they were developed, like if and when that happens, should we be worried? Yeah, let's just let's just stipulate that it's possible to make really smart machines. Yeah, um, probably they would be rational because they would be programmed to be that way, unlike the human brain, which just sort of evolved in like a haphazard uh, way, such that parts of our brain are, you know, optimizing for different things than other parts of our brain. They aren't necessarily like working together. So yeah, the like super intelligent machines would probably have like a built-in utility function of things that they care about and would, you know, basically flawlessly, because they'd be programmed that way, be optimizing for those those goals that they uh, were programmed to have. And whether or not that would be good for us, humanity, is uh, a real open question. It seems likely that that their goals probably wouldn't overlap that much with the kind of world that humans would want to see. And that doesn't necessarily have to be because they don't like us and want to, you know, kill or enslave us. It's just the case that most utility functions that a computer program could have, like most possible things that an AI could care about, would not uh, entail humanity continuing to live and thrive. Mm-hmm. Like, just pick something, something random. Like, let's say the computer program cared only about. Uh, uh, creating as many paper clips as possible, you know? There's nothing about hating humans in that utility function, but still, creating as many paper clips as possible involves, like, uh, either enslaving humans to force them to create paper clips, or probably more likely, 
um, eradicating humans so that they can't prevent the machine from, you know, turning things into paperclips. Yeah, but by the time we invent super intelligent robots, will we still really be using paperclips for anything? <laughs> <laughs> Fair question. These are these are like you know super futuristic paperclips. Well, but I'm, I th I think that you know if you actually program a computer to create as many paperclips as possible, it's easy to see how that could go wrong. But it seems to me the danger is that you would program a machine just to make paperclips and not really you know, you know you just put a zero where you should have a one or just don't do it carefully enough with the effect that it's going to have a what we would consider an irrational commitment to producing paperclips <laughs> at the expense of other things. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, that feels kind of like a silly example if you take a super intelligent machine and tell it to create as many paperclips as possible at whatever cost. But there's all these ways that we could think we're programming an artificial intelligence to be uh, doing the things that we want it to do. But uh, just like all of those stories where people wish for something and then the genie grants their wish, but not in a way that they wanted, uh, you know, th there are all these like implicit premises that we're including when we say, hey, uh, AI, um, get my grandmother out of that burning building. You know, we are implicitly adding on, you know, without killing her in the process. But we don't say that because it doesn't occur to us, like, of course, without killing her in the process. But, you know, the AI could follow that command and, uh, you know, eject our grandmother forcibly from the burning building such that she sails through the air and, you know, <laughs> dies when she hits the ground. And, you know, upon seeing that, we'd be like, oh, well, we didn't mean that way, but we didn't say that. It's like really hard to specify what our values are and what specifically we would want the AI to do in such a way that it would actually do something we want. All right, cool. I mean, and that sort of brings up basically one of the overall issues I want to talk about, which is just that movies that glorify emotion over reason and so on, what effect do they actually have on people in the real world? I mean, sort of the whole theme of Star Wars, it seems to me, is that, you know, like it comes down to Luke's flying down to attack the Death Star. And the whole message is don't trust some stupid scientific instrument. You know, listen to the voices in your head. They're much more reliable. And I do think that affects the way that people look at the world. And I think, Julian, one of the things uh, I, I heard you were, you were talking about, that there are some really major aspects of the world that intuitive reasoning can really lead us astray on. Yeah, it's true that our intuition is, like, our intuitive sense of what to expect is based on what's happened in the past. And, you know, for for most of our lives, things haven't changed that much. So the world as it is today is like pretty similar for me to the world as it was 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, yes, of course, the like the internet is bigger, like now Facebook we have has podcasts. become gigantic and, uh, and creepy and <laughs> you know, okay, so there's some changes, but like still the world today is so different than it was for people 300 years ago. So when we like predict what things are going to be like in the future, like one of the standard mistakes we make is like failing to this failure of imagination of just how different it, it will be in the future. We tend to take what we're used to and then, you know, make little sort of superficial changes like, oh, it'll be like this, but with flying cars. <laughs> you know, so when we're when we're considering like long term complicated problems, like how much will global warming affect affect humanity? Uh, how big of a problem is it going to be? We can't really draw on our past experience to form an accurate intuitive judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really seems to me that a, a major purpose of science fiction is to train people to 
not engage in the naturalistic fallacy, I would say, which is, you know, the, the naturalistic fallacy is that it's natural, therefore it's good. And, right. and it seems like so much bad science fiction. The premise is we can't assimilate with the Borg because that would be losing our humanity without ever asking the question, well, what is the value of our humanity and what would be, you know, not, not having any sort of rational analysis of the pros and cons of assimilating with the Borg, right? Just, it's just taken for granted that it, any big change would be bad. Um, and then one that just drives me crazy is that people say, oh, I wouldn't want to live. I wouldn't want to live forever. I wouldn't want to live for a really long time because, you know, death is such, is so great. It's, uh, you know, it makes my life more valuable or something. Yeah, this is another example of, I, I think that's a pretty clear cut case of a rationalization uh, for you know, something that we feel we can't change. Um, and so we like rationalize why this is what we would have wanted all along. Zooming out and looking at the changes to humanity, to human nature that have occurred over the millennia, our lifespan has gotten longer over the millennia as well. We used to have a lifespan of like 40 years and now it's, you know, 80, 85 years. If death gives your life so much meaning, would you want to go back to a lifespan of 40 years? If not, then why wouldn't you also want to increase your lifespan to like two or 300 years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and living much longer or having the option to live as long as you want is very different from being forced to be immortal. Like I actually find the idea of being forced to be immortal, um, like not having the option to opt out of life to be more horrifying than, uh, than being forced to be mortal. Because you just wouldn't know. Like what, what might happen in 5,000 years where I would be like, oh, crap. This is not good, <laughs> you know. It's true. Yeah, I, you know, science fiction like, uh, see, well, Groundhog Day, for example, I found really horrifying. He couldn't escape that town. That was, <laughs> that was really scary. Everyone was so, you know, sappy and sweet and it was oppressive and he couldn't escape. This conversation reminds me of, uh, I was just watching the show Vikings. I don't know if you guys have seen it. And, you know, obviously it's a, based on historical Vikings. And so, you know, Vikings used to believe, or Vikings would believe that they would go to Valhalla when they die. Like, you know, if they were valorous enough and, and all that kind of stuff. So in the show, there's a guy who's like, he's an old man. And, uh, because he's an old man now, like nobody will let him fight anymore. And so because he can't go fight, he doesn't, he doesn't have the opportunity to die in battle and thus go to Valhalla. Right. And so I just thought it was really interesting because in their belief system, uh, wanting to die in battle is a completely rational way of thinking because he knows in his mind that when he dies, he's going to go to this magical land called Valhalla where he's going to be, uh, you know, he's going to be like a king because he was such a valorous person in life. Well, that's why we need to draw the distinction, right, between epistemic rationality and instrumental rationality, where the Vikings right. in that case would have good instrumental rationality. They're being rational about achieving their goals, but they don't have good epistemic rationality, which is that their worldview is not accurately aligned with reality. Yeah, and yeah, that's a, a important distinction to draw and 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 I'd even like go further and say you could be wrong about the world but still be uh, epistemically rational if you're doing the best you can with the information you have. Yeah, I, I just I mean I think there were always people in the ancient world who saw that an afterlife was not rational. Uh, it's true, yeah. I've only learned this recently actually that a lot of ancient thinkers were like much more rational than I realized. Like they, they knew the earth wasn't flat. Um, they, they, you know, knew that there wasn't evidence for a God, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you know, Christopher Hitchens edited a book called uh, the portable atheist. 
mm-hmm. I think it was called. And yeah, and the earliest, it's, it's you know, sort of a collection of atheist writings throughout history. And the earliest ones are, you know, going way, way back to, to ancient Greece and so on. There were definitely people back then who, who had very, uh, very naturalistic uh, viewpoints. And, and so I think, you know, there was probably one Viking guy who was just like, no, there's Valhalla. That's, uh, I'm sure that's not true. You know, come on, guys, be more rational. Yeah, he probably didn't live to write the history books. <laughs> <laughs> not a very, yeah, probably didn't fit in that well, I would imagine. <laughs> Um, but going back to immortality, uh, though, I thought, Julie, you, you, you talked about once where you went to, you were invited to speak at this sort of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, event at a school. At a high school, actually. Yeah. 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 And you wrote a piece about it and you said one of the most interesting things I've ever heard anyone say about immortality in that, which is that people will say, oh, well, if your life went on and on forever and ever and ever and ever, life would lose all meaning. There would be nothing to distinguish one moment from the next, et cetera. And so an immortal life would be without meaning. But then people also say to atheists, well, wait, you just believe that when you die, that's the end and there's nothing after that. Doesn't that make your life completely meaningless? So then a mortal life is completely meaningless. And a lot of people, I think, have this in their head at the same time that life would be meaningless if it were finite and it would be meaningless if it were were infinite. And wait, there's something wrong that doesn't add up there. Right, exactly. If you feel like life lacks meaning if it's all going to end someday, and you feel that life lacks meaning if it's going to last forever, then that says more about the incoherence of your own concept of meaning than it does about, you know, the nature of the universe. Yeah, my favorite example of people thinking that life has no meaning because everything's going to end someday comes from uh, Annie Hall. Uh, At the beginning, Woody Allen's character as a young boy has just found out that the universe is expanding. And so, you know, all life is going to die out someday. And, you know, he's depressed. And so his mom has dragged him into a therapist's office and she's shrieking, he won't even do his homework. And, you know, little boy Woody is sitting next to her and he glumly replies, well, what's the point? (laughs) And it's like played for comedy, but this is actually like a very real attitude. And people I know, not me personally, but people I know have, you know, gone through bouts of depression after learning that, uh, you know, people are mortal or that the universe is, you know, one day uh, that that life, you know, will eventually die out. Mm -hmm. Well, and you talked about this in one episode of your podcast, and I thought it was really interesting what you guys were saying is that one uh, response to that would be that, um, you know, you might take a trip. Say you're um, faced with two routes to get to a particular destination, and one route is really scenic and beautiful, and one is really like, it's like traffic jams all the way or something and really unpleasant. And the choice you make matters, even if you're going to end up in the same destination. Yeah, somehow I think this sort of existential angst goes away to a large extent when you just zoom in and and look at things on a smaller scale. Just instead of asking yourself, like, does anything matter if the universe will end someday? When you're thinking that abstractly in that big picture, you might just feel like things don't matter. But when you zoom in and ask, like, do I care whether my brother has a happy year or a sad year. Yes, I care. Like, I want his year to be happy, you know? And so if you just, like, look at the individual components of, you know, life or, or you know, of your world, then you will find probably that you care about those individual components. All right, so we've come to the part of my outline where I have Al Gore written down. <laughs> yes, please. People are wondering, like, why do I have Al Gore written down? And the reason is because I think that, to me, Al Gore sort of represents how in American politics, someone suffers for being perceived as too, quote unquote, robotic and too, quote unquote, professorial. And 
Um, and I know people are going to be screaming like, no, I don't like Al Gore because of his policies, blah, blah, blah. But my, my point is just that it wouldn't matter what his policies were, that he was punished for coming across as too interested in presenting facts, too interested in presenting logical arguments, you know, too unemotional. And I think that's just, that's another symptom of this sort of general cultural hostility toward rationality. And I think it's just really dangerous where in, you know, in, in, in politics that it's a, a, a mark against you that you seem too calm and too, too much like a professor. I mean, like a robot professor is exactly who I want to be president. Like if they were, <laughs> if that was a candidate, I would vote for a robot professor in a second. So, you know, why is it, why are you punishing someone just for kind of seeming kind of like a robot professor? I know. I also feel like I, I, I'm sort of in that bubble where to me, it, like, of course you would want someone who cares about facts and, you know, qualifies their statements and admits when they don't know things like, of course. Right. Um, and then I keep like having that bubble burst when, when that turns out that's not actually how the rest of the world, or at least the rest of uh, America thinks. I, I think this actually is a, a symptom of this bigger sort of trend of anti-intellectualism in uh, at least in American life, less so in parts of Western Europe. But um, there's this great book by Richard Hofstadter called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, I think, um, where he talks about some of the origins of this attitude that people who are smart and learned and logical are not to be trusted or are somehow like less real or less American. And some of it goes back to uh, democracy, like the feeling that if someone you know, claims to know more than other people, then that's like demo undemocratic and like everyone's opinion should count equally. Um, and it also goes back to religion and America's roots in, uh, in faith and the fear and suspicion of learning and reason as being opposed to faith. Mm -hmm. Well, that just makes me, there's this really good Isaac Asimov quote where he says, uh, it's a, it's a foul. It's, he says something along the lines of it's a fallacy to say that democracy means that, that my ignorance is just as good as your wisdom. Yeah. And, you know, and I think people's, you could say that that what I care about is no more or less important than what you care about. You just can't say that like my estimation based on more facts is like no more valid than your estimation based on fewer facts. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's interesting actually that um, in politics you can be demonized for both being uh, too logical and not emotional enough, and also for being too emotional. There was some video of Obama where. I think it was after one of the school shootings and he was, he was speaking and at some point he like, he just sort of swept a tear out from under his eye. Oh yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I remember, I remember he like took a lot of crap for that. And it was like, <laughs> like, what do you actually want out of a, out of a leader? <laughs> like, do you, do you want someone who is actually strictly a robot or do you want somebody who can actually care? It's like, I mean, I'm not saying that one way is better than the other, but John, I, mean, I hope like, I've made this clear that I want a robot professor. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Have I been, no, have no, I been I know, unclear I, on that point? <laughs> I know, I know where you fall in this debate, Dave. But I'm saying, like, uh, you know, the people who are—it's just—it's just like sort of shows the dishonesty of, of political um, pundits and whatnot. Because like they'll criticize somebody for uh, for going either way. Like, you know, if he was just too logical and too cold uh, as he was speaking, they would criticize him for that. But because he showed some emotion, they'll criticize him for that. Yeah, and I, I think this might go back to David your point about what are the real consequences of having these kinds of archetypes in our pop culture? And it's hard to imagine that if we had 
you know, heroes of our stories who were emotional and logical that, you know, the public would be as like judgmental of, uh, of Al Gore for being professorial or maybe as judgmental for uh, Obama for shedding a tear over a, a massacre. That said, though, like if I was going to pick any uh, recent president, certainly um, uh, who who would be Vulcan like, I, I would have to I would have to pick Obama. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Al, Al Gore would have been very Vulcan like if he had been elected. But but Obama is actually pretty, pretty close to being a Vulcan. Um, you know, if you just put some pointy ears on him, he would he would, uh, you know, he would fit right in. <laughs> I agree, actually. Yeah. Can I actually give an example of a of a candidate for an an actually rational hero? Yes, please. So there's this fan fiction called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. So this is technically fan fiction. Like it's a imagining, it's a story that unfolds in the Harry Potter universe, but it's basically taking J.K. Rowling's world and using it as a jumping off point to explore these really interesting questions about rationality. And so the premise is that uh, in this version, Harry Potter is like a strong rationalist, someone who's like, really into scientific inquiry and figuring out how the world works and like finding like better ways of doing things. And so when he gets transplanted into the magical world at age 11 or whatever, um, he immediately sets about figuring out, okay, how does this all work? Like how, how is magic passed down from generation to generation? When you say magic words, what is actually causing those words to create, you know, the transmogrification or something. And so he like runs all these like quick and dirty experiments to figure out, um, okay, like, you know, what are the principles underlying the magic? Is it that you have to, you know, have something in your head, like when you say the words, or can you just say the words without knowing what they mean and have that work? And so he tests these different hypotheses to kind of disambiguate it. So really, like the author of this fan fiction, uh, whose name is Eliezer Yudkowsky, is sort of taking J.K. Rowling's world even more seriously than she takes it, um, trying to like find some sort of logic to how things work in this world, which she probably didn't even have in mind when she created it. That actually sounds awesome. I mean, it's like uh, if the person who wrote it could file the serial numbers off and turn it into an original thing. Uh, I mean, sounds like maybe it's pretty pretty well tied to Harry Potter. But I mean, like it would be like Fifty Shades of Rationality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would read it. Uh, no, I mean that's that sounds awesome though. I love that idea of of applying that rational thinking to a magical world. Because yeah, I mean that's that's one of the problems with the Harry Potter world is that the system is so undefined, and and you just there's no way you can actually anticipate anything that is going to happen. And Eliezer, I mean, um, in addition to writing Harry Potter fanfic, uh, is also a sort of actively involved in the rationalist skeptical movement. And I guess maybe, Julie, could you talk about that? And just in your experience, do you meet a lot of people in the rationalist community who are into science fiction? Yeah, I do. Um, and I think that's, I think that's partly out of just sort of general intellectual curiosity, which leads to both interest in rationality and also uh, enjoyment of science fiction. And it's also probably because being interested in rationality and like uh, improving your own cognition involves a lot of uh, what if questions. It involves this uh, counterfactual thinking. So you have to be able to ask yourself like, well, what if I knew that you know, my hypothesis was wrong? Then what would I expect to see in the world? Um, or what if things were different, then how would I feel about them? And what does that say about like the way my, uh, emotional reactions or what causes my emotional reactions? That counterfactual thinking is sort of key to science fiction. Like essentially all science fiction stories are what if questions, what if 
human fertility had ended, what would the world be like? Or what if there were greater than human level intelligence robots? Like how would we deal with questions about their rights or about morality, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, the counterfactual thinking seems like at the heart of both rationality and science fiction. And also your co-host on the Rationally Speaking podcast, uh, Massimo Piliucci, recently mm -hmm. taught a whole semester course on science fiction and philosophy. Right, yes. Uh, and you guys talked about science fiction and philosophy in your podcast in episode 71. So everyone should go check that out. Yes, indeed. And so I guess, uh, Julia, I guess uh, before we let you go, do you want to just uh, talk a little bit about CIFAR and what's been going on with that and how people can get involved with that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'd love to. So CIFAR is the Center for Applied Rationality. It's this new nonprofit think tank that I co-founded about a year and a half ago, and we're out in the Bay Area. And we're essentially in the business of developing strategies for improving human rationality, for improving human reasoning and judgment. So there are all of these ways that scientists have demonstrated human reasoning tends to go astray and like uh, in what situations this tends to happen. Like, you know, we're all sort of inherently a little bit biased against information that contradicts what we, or, you know, challenges what we already believe or challenges what we want to be true. You know, for example, also we don't, we don't have full access to why we want the things we want or, or why, you know, we're averse to the things that we're averse to. If I don't want to apply for a certain job, I might consciously think that it's because, you know, well, I wouldn't want it anyway. But maybe the actual reason has more to do with my own fear of failure, or fear of rejection, etc. So we end up rationalizing a lot. And these are just sort of like two of like many, many examples of, of the ways that our brain produces beliefs that aren't true or produces um, actions that aren't actually helping us get the things that we value. So there hasn't yet been a ton of research into how to improve our reasoning and, and decision making. And that's what CIFAR is doing. Um, we're taking the existing literature and using that as a jumping off point to develop more sort of like five second mental habits that people can train themselves to use to like notice when they're rationalizing or to notice when they're unfairly ignoring evidence that challenges their viewpoints, et cetera, et cetera. And we're testing them out and collecting data on what works better and what works worse and taking the, the good stuff and training people in those decision-making and reasoning strategies at workshops which we've so far been holding in the Bay Area, but uh, hopefully over the next year, year and a half, we'll be rolling out in other cities as well. Mm. And so then what sort of uh, websites or whatever are there that people should check out? To work oh, our website is rationality.org. It's a domain we are very uh, excited to get. So uh, yeah, you can find out more about the workshops and when they are and how to apply. You can check out our recommended reading list, which has some, some of the best uh, books that we recommend to just like get an introduction to human reasoning and what's possible for human reasoning. Um, and we, we're also running some sort of quick and dirty online research to test out some of these uh, reasoning improvement strategies. So if you want to help us and you're, you know, too far away to, to come to a workshop, then consider signing up uh, to be part of one of our online studies. Cool. And would you say that there's absolutely nothing irrational about how emotional you were about getting the rationality.org domain name? <laughs> Not at all. That was a completely rational response to uh, uh, rationality.org domain name, especially because now my email address is julia at rationality.org. Hmm. Uh, all right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Julia, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been uh, such a pleasure. And thanks again to Annalie Newitz for being our guest today. 
Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Lord Magellan, Ryan Bluebirds, William Green, and Deathstalker616. And special thanks to Douglas Moran for becoming subscriber number 52. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on subscribe. Alright, so that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.